and gentlemen and freedom fighters all over the world, you are tuned in to the one and the only A Difference in Thought. I'm your host, Charlie Ray, and here at A Difference in Thought, A Difference in Thought engages and processes current events, culture, philosophy, public policy, and faith through the ancient art of truth-telling. Join the conversation and gain an alternative perspective with A Difference in Thought. This podcast is an, an honor and homage of the work and mission of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And our core philosophy here is that basic arithmetic teaches us that there can be no difference without subtraction. So first, before saying where you would like to see a difference, first consider where you are willing to take a subtraction. And we're going to be talking about subtractions today because this is season two, episode number six, entitled Behold the Wise Men. Revisiting Habits of Empire and Why Trump Evangelicals Aren't Trying to Solve Racism. Now, I know I probably triggered a couple of y'all right now saying like, how dare you say I'm not trying to solve racism? So first, we're going to break it down to what we are talking about. Because not everyone that enters into the work of racial healing or the work of racial reconciliation or even people who just don't like racism are actually entering into this space to solve that problem. A lot of times they show up to do something else. We're going to talk about that. But we are talking about revisiting the habits of empire. Now, in my now tradition and talking about the story of Christmas and the appearance of Jesus um, in his original context, I like to talk about it outside of the Christmas season, right? I'm not talking about, you know, what you and y'all have to get the, to the sales and the commercialism and the capitalism and all the other type of stuff and the Christmas plays and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and all this type of stuff. We want to clear that out of your system so then you can kind of talk about what actually was the point of Christmas? What are some of the lessons from the Christmas story that we talked about? Now, last year, and this is kind of weird, well, not weird, but I tried to tell y'all, okay? Now, last year, we talked about revisiting, we talked about uh, the Christ child and the habits of empire. Um, uh, And so, in the habits of empire, we talked about what was the political context of Jesus's life. Uh, what what were religious leaders back then doing? What was their role between government and uh, religious systems? We talked about how Caesar uh, made himself, uh, you know, Pontifex Maximus, which we was talking about how Caesar became the ruler, the political ruler and the religious ruler and how he recruited religious leaders or as John Fia would say in his book, uh, uh, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, uh, talks about uh, people that just her whole role was to validate um, whatever uh, the empire uh, said, which meaning that there was no difference between what your religion said and whatever the empire and the ruler said. And we talked about that actually last Christmas season, well, post-Christmas season, same time around this year. And I thought it would be a good time to revisit it because we got Christians out here acting a dang fool uh, for this current empire and this current administration. Now, some of y'all have uh, been seeing this, uh, and I'll uh, I'll tell you kind of how it went for me. 
I had seen, uh, now we talked about this before because we talked about Mike Pence in, uh, in this podcast before we talked about the episode of Mike Pence and Micah's Priest and America's Church or God's Church. And we talked about all the black pastors that went to Trump and were talking about, oh, all these great things that are happening and talked about uh, Opportunity Zones, which research has shown is really just a cool way for people for uh, corporate people to get discounts on the capital gains tax. It doesn't really do that much for black communities, but hence I go forward. Uh, we talked about that on that episode. Uh, we've also talked about uh, the souls of white folk, where W.E.B. Du Bois talks about how uh, whiteness is a religion to which people are emotionally converted uh, and has a lot to deal to, to, and that there are stages of how this happens. One is talk about just white pride or cultural pride, and then it talks into a disdain for a uh, tragic uh, events that happen to non-white people, meaning that if it ain't white, we don't really, we don't really care about it. We're not really concerned about it, right? So when we see people go to the White House talking about religious liberty and freedom and, you know, who, freedom for who? Uh, because do we not have uh, some of our Latin brother, uh, uh, Latin uh, ex brothers and sisters in cages right now currently? But that doesn't get brought up at the White House, but we hear blessings and, okay, well, let me let me calm down because I'm getting ahead of myself, right? And then finally, W.B. Du Bois talks about how then that turns to uh, violence. And so we've uh, been seeing a spike in violence um, throughout, uh, uh, since we've last had this. And so I thought with all the stuff that we talked about in that episode, if you haven't heard it, uh, please make sure that you do. That was season two I believe episode two, No Room in the End, The Christ Child and the Habits of Empire. So it'll 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 feel like a, a, a bit of it won't feel like it was recorded last year. Feel like it was recorded last week. But uh, and for those who uh, have come and who are visiting my podcast for uh, the Navy Hill kind of setup um, and the Empire for stuff like that. Um, um, we, um, I will be getting back to that because boys, there are a lot to talk about there, but right now we're going to be talking about revisiting the habits of empire and that the habits of empire don't just happen outside of, um, this is happening in governments and in public spaces, but they also happen within the context of faith and WVB Du Bois talked about this in the souls of white folk. Uh, and so this is the main thing that, broke the news and broke the Christian interweb, shall we say. Um, so, uh, a bunch of worship leaders, people from Hillsong, who's, uh, from Australia, actually, well, they have some places in New York too. Uh, 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 Brian Houston, Brian Houston from Hillsong, uh, shows up, uh, at the White House. So does, so do, uh, worship leaders from Bethel Music. And for people who are like, man, I don't know anything about Christian music. These are the people who write probably, uh, 80% of the songs that white churches sing. Um, uh, well, not like hymns and stuff, but I guess the modern day people carry Job. Um, uh, and there was even some black people up in there. So some of y'all saying like, well, what can you say? There were black people there. And we'll talk about that later in the podcast as well. Uh, they come to the white house. Uh, and from what I understand, it was talking about, they were giving an update on what they were doing around religious freedom. Um, uh, they were doing things about, I, I think they were talking about some of the work they were doing in ending sex trafficking as well, I believe. Uh, and so they uh, go to the White House. But here's the thing. 
They brought the god dang cameras. Now, in the middle of the, <laughs> you know, I was, you know, facing impeachment and doing all this other type of things. And so, hey, let's bring, let's, let's bring some Christian people up in here. Hey, bring the worship leaders in uh, quotation marks. Uh, we'll talk about that later also. Um, and they come in and the White House has them recording videos talking about, man, it's so great to see all of the good things that are coming out of this White House. Uh, so many good things, and we got to pray, and we even got to lead worship and sing songs in the White House, right? Uh, as if kind of this, like, the return of Jesus to the White House, because he left when Black Obama was there. But, uh, <laughs> read between the lines. Anyways, uh, there's all the good things that are happening uh, within this administration. Uh, then you even have, uh, they take this big picture, and there's one guy... Uh, even uh, is breaks through the crowd to touch the hem of President Trump's garment, in which he was saying that he was trying to get some of Trump's anointing because uh, this worship leader was running for office. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that later as well. Uh, and they are just kind of uh, just doling on President Trump, kind of the same way that a lot of the black pastors were, minus John Gray. Uh, and just saying, oh, look at the good things that are happening in this White House, and God is doing great things, and Brian Houston comes all the way from Australia to say, hey, man, you know, I think it's great when America is strong, and we are, uh, we are from Australia, and we believe that God blesses when America is strong. I'm sorry, that's my, <laughs> my friend Houston impression. Anyways, he's all like, oh, the world is strong when America is strong, and, you know, oh, God bless America, and all this other type of stuff. They have their photo shoot. They talk about the good things that are happening. They uh, take pictures of them singing worship songs in the White House. Uh, then they peace out. Hmm. Now, <laughs> the problem that I have with it is that, again, when we talk about the role of speaking truth to power, when we talk about prophets, when we, you know, people love to talk about all these uh, uh, Old Testament prophets that were in palaces and places and things like that but they don't like to talk about what the world they said when they got there huh so we talk about daniel right we talk about daniel shadrach meshach and abednego uh how uh first off they were like look there are standards that we live by and i know that y'all want us to eat this food i know y'all want us to do this but we have decided no matter what y'all say we not gonna defile ourselves and take up the same diet that y'all have, right? Now, there's bars in that, right? And we talk about spiritual diet. If there is no differentiation between uh, uh, God's people and the and the leaders of this nation, then are you really separate? <clears throat> and I'm going to talk about separate and equal because we're not going to get into all that. But uh, we will talk about a little bit later about civil rights and um, the role in that in the United Nations. So stay tuned for that. But... Uh, we don't talk about Jeremiah, uh, the weeping prophet, because he was chased out. And uh, uh, one of the, was that Jezebel? I can't remember. Somebody was seeking his life because they didn't like what he said, right? We didn't talk about John the Baptist who comes before the king and says, hey, um, you can't just be having your brother's wife like that and think God going to be cool with it. And then um, his brother's wife said, hey, for my birthday, I want John the Baptist's head on a plate, Right. So people like to talk, take all the pictures, but lots, I guarantee you, they wasn't up in there taking pictures and oh, it's a lot of good things. Come. <laughs> 
There was a purpose for what they did, and many times it was bringing a rebuke for how things happen to the vulnerable. Or even if it's not a rebuke, right? Because you got Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes before the king, and he talks about, um, you know, he dares to have a sad face, a sad countenance before the king. And he says, well, hey, could you at least consider the vulnerable, right? So you don't even got to go, you know, MLK, Malcolm X. You can at least bring the joint up. But this silence, right? Uh, uh, Dr. King uh, talks about uh, it's not the the um, words of your enemy, but the silence of your friend that you remember. And so a lot of people like me, you know, listen to the lyrics of their songs and listen to, you know, oh yeah, we, we're about that life. We do music videos in Iraq. We, we want to have all the black people on stage and zoom in on them and show that we're progressing, that we care about these causes so that we can have representation and y'all can buy our products. But then when it comes to actually, uh, uh, dealing with the issues and dealing with the people that impact the vulnerable, it's suddenly silent. Or even a complicit, even worse than silence, compl- uh, uh, a complicitness in which you are endorsing and calling good, um, uh, 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 only talking about good things that are happening when there are also negative things coming from this place. So, uh, one of the uh, books that I've been reading that has currently been blessing my life, uh, and I, I remember I saw this, I saw this author when he was still alive. May he rest in peace. Uh, Richard Twist, um, uh, Native American um, uh, uh, author um, uh, of the Lakota tribe, um, and he um, wrote a book called Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys, a Native American Expression of the Jesus Way. And so he talks about in this book how he used what he called... um, syncretism in a positive way, meaning so that that there are ways that you can connect with a culture that are helpful and that can make people more open to what you may have to say or what you may have to share and understanding that each of us being made the image of God, each person's culture has an aspect of which can reveal uh, the character of God more in ways that, that, that other people weren't. But he was having problems when he was having dealing with um, white evangelicals because white evangelicals didn't like uh, a source or a, um, uh, a perspective that did not arise from Western tradition. And so they would accuse him of this syncretism of, well, you're just doing whatever they're doing and there's no difference between what you're doing. So you're not really preaching the true gospel, which came from our white Western tradition. You're doing something else and you're leading people astray. And so his, and in, in, in his response to them, he says, well, dang, y'all do the same daggone thing. And he talks about a term. And for the purpose of this conversation, we're going to be talking about what he calls counteractive syncretism, uh, in which he essentially just says, uh, that there gets to a point where Christi, Christ, white Christians think that Western values are just automatically biblical values, and they do not, uh, uh, they assume that they are somehow just the default. We talked about this in uh, The Souls of White Folk in the Second Baptism, uh, where Austin Channing Brown talks about her book that religion, whiteness is a um, 
religion that must be repented of uh, and where people are or black people are told that in order to become like Christ, they must become more white and white is more godly and all these other things like that. So he talks about uh, American nationalism and um, what he calls counteractive syncretism. He says, I want to suggest uh, that openly displaying the American flag alongside the Christian flag on each side of the stage or pulpit is an example of counteractive syncretism. It is blending the ideology of nationhood and the Christian religion. It presupposes an idealized national exceptionalism of God's chosenness, blessing, and approval of America. Uh, the result is a unique Americanized version of Christianity that directs attention away from identity in Christ and his kingdom. It redirects allegiance to a kind of Christian patriotism that demands a deep-seated loyalty, reverence, trust, and faith in political, military, and economic might. It inspires national pride and the assumptions of creator's divine favor. And by creator, that's who he refers to as God. He refers to God as the creator. Um, he said, uh, the mixing of Euro-American culture with the gospel from Plato to Andrew Jackson to Ronald Reagan is considered permissible and orthodox, right? Um, uh, Brian McLaren sees counteractive syncretism when used in typical ways by white Euro-American male theologians as intended, intended to attack the mixing of any cultural heritage other than their own with the gospel, uh, for him, the result is the mixing of platonic categories with a biblical witness um, without claims of syncretism, but Native American stories and culture cannot do the same, right? And so he talks about the 2008 pre-election rhetoric voiced the fears of many conservative American Christian leaders who believe that the election of President Barack Obama would signal the end times and the return of Jesus. Why didn't the presidential elections of Brazil, the Philippines, Russia, and so on cause similar anxieties? Because American ethnocentrism is constructed and fueled by theologically informed nationalism. In my view, the political religious syncretism results in a compromise of scripture that has and does suppress indigenous cultural identity. It oppresses native intellectual thought and resists desperately needed wisdom located in the indigenous knowledge traditions that Western Christianity lacks. So he pretty much is saying, man, y'all, and, th and this is exactly what W.E.B. Du Bois was talking about in The Souls of White Folk when he talks about the role of the missionary in uh, the perpetuation of this white supremacy and this new religion and saying that the missionary uh, was sent out with the uh, um, colonizer uh, and what's what did Desmond uh oh was that Desmond Tutu uh who who said this quote? It's talked about when we when they came, uh they had the Bibles and we had the land, and when they left, they had the land and we had the Bibles, right? He talks about this uh uh what is the purpose of this religion that is being perpetuated and it actually is just um putting a spiritual cloak, a spiritual guise over uh white um over white Christianity, oh, over, sorry, uh, guys over preserving white cultural values, but you just equate white to Christian, and then you see this kind of thing uh, happening. Uh, and so when we talked about in the habits of empire, we talked about the term king of the Jews, and we talked about how in the world did Herod become king of the Jews? And really it was about, it wasn't about any type of divine, you know, through the lineage of David or anything like that. It was that he partnered with Rome, the empire and the power of the time to get um, uh, resources, to get political decision makers with whoever was winning 
so that he could secure his plot into whatever uh, the Roman Empire was doing. And so when we see worship leaders going there, and uh, uh, I think we'll, <laughs> we may transition into uh, uh, what we will call our section of uh, Do Better Baby here. <laughs> so this Do Better Baby section is uh, we're going to be talking about, and later we're going to talk about even contrasting this with the wise men from the Christmas narrative, and then also we're going to delve into who is here to solve racism and versus who is here to prove to themselves that they are not racist and the very different effects that that has. So I got to give the greatest do better baby to these Trump evangelicals uh, that came here uh, just for uh, just not for, again, engaging in this counteractive syncretism. Now, a lot of times people say, oh, man, well, you know, they were here to talk about good things. They were here to talk about all these other types of things. But uh, here's something that uh, here's something that uh, people aren't telling you about. Now, in this uh, picture of all these people in the White House, I talked about letter later, a person who uh, was trying to touch the hem of Trump's garment. <laughs> uh, so here's the thing. Um, and I will go to um, this. So let me back up a little bit to talk about where this kind of is going at. And we'll talk a little bit around the original thread that I talked about. But this is this is uh, I wrote a thread on Twitter that said this. If America truly hated racism, it wouldn't punish black people and people of color for pointing it out, calling it out and working to eradicate it. It wouldn't defend, honor, elect and bless those who perpetuate in it. In America, racism has been the necessary evil for white comfort. I'm going to let that sit, let that linger for a little bit, okay? Uh, and so then, uh, as I was seeing all these things happen and thinking about the things that we were talking about in the souls of white folk, I then said, look, what is even more sad about this uh, post, what, what I just read, is that you can exchange America or the United States for the white evangelical church, and it still works, uh, and so let's just go ahead and do that for fun. If the white evangelical church truly hated racism, it wouldn't punish black people for pointing it out, calling it out, and working to eradicate it. And again, we can, we can talk about uh, the post that I did around is social justice a part of the gospel, as you saw John MacArthur trying to rebuke black people for talking about the, the, the gospel recall, uh, calls on us to actually deal with racism uh, and all the social implications of that, including white privilege and all these other types of things. Um, and if the white evangelical church, uh, truly hated racism, it wouldn't defend, honor, elect, and bless those who perpetuate it. In the white evangelical church, racism has been the necessary evil for white comfort. Now, the reason I read those back to back, and some of y'all have been in these, in, in these, uh, in some of these circles, y'all can say, yeah, nah, both of them joints sound true. Now, how can it be that? We love to say we are in the world and we are not of it and our kingdom is not of this world and other things like that. But when we read about their common responses uh, that um, white evangelical churches may have and um, uh, that um, uh, just white ethnocentric um, uh, Americans may have, that there's not much of a difference. Richard Twist would say 
the problem is counteractive syncretism. W.E.B. Du Bois would talk about that the, the religion that has been converted to is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, but more so the gospel of white America and the gospel of white Jesus, right? So I continue in this thread and I say, obviously not all white Christians, but y'all know who I'm talking about. Uh, and I share about um, uh, Rich, Richard Twist uh, talks about white Western Christianity and nationalism and joined in what he calls counteractive syncretism. As America goes, so does God. So when white Christians talk about founding fathers and the righteousness of the Constitution and how the U.S. is where it is because of, in uh, quotation marks, God's blessing, yet has zero to say about how the U.S. has massacred and oppressed those Jesus loves and identifies himself as, this is a sign of counteractive syncretism, right? So my mom, so recently, tons of worship leaders, and I put it in quotation marks, went to the White House and laid hands of blessings on a president that is actively engaging in racism and racist policy via Stephen Miller, who just was outed to have over 900 emails of spouting white supremacist, white nationalist, uh, ethnocentric um, philosophies that he is now embedded into the foreign policy and the immigration policy of, of the United States through Trump's cabinet. And also, the and you think about the internment camps for asylum seekers at the Mexican border um, that Mike Pence went and visited and turned his nose up at the people there, even though they were his brothers in Christ. Uh, and so when tons of worship leaders go to the White House and they speak blessing but no rebuke, it is my belief this rebuke was absent, not in an effort to show grace, but yet again is due to eradicating white discomfort instead of eradicating racism. And yes, black people can engage in this if they believe racial healing is about alleviating white guilt and discomfort. Uh, and so again, now, so now we're going to get into when we're talking about why Trump evangelicals aren't trying to solve racism. Now, let me first say what I'm not saying. That every Trump evangelical is just cool with racism. That every Trump evangelical, uh, you know, doesn't mind racism. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there are different brands of racial healing and racial reconciliation. And so when people use these terms or people sing about these terms or people have black people in their music videos, we assume, oh, these people are trying to solve the problem of racism. Not true. Here's the problem. Not everyone that shows up to the conversation of racial healing and racial reconciliation is actually trying to solve racism. They often are just trying to prove um, to themselves that they are not conditioned by racism, which is ridiculous. I'm black and I'm conditioned by racism, so I know y'all white people are. <laughs> but here, so then I go on to say there is a brand of racial healing that says the role of black people is to forgive and be gracious, right? And that's the role that we have in racial healing, right? Uh, and you see that again with the Amber Geiger and with the, you know, like hugging the judge and everybody loved that, right? But if somebody has to come and rebuke and say, hey man, um, why didn't y'all uh, actually bring up a lot of the racist policies and uh, a lot of the um, uh, attacks on the vulnerable when y'all went to see Trump, then, you know, no, that's not that's not the role for black people. No, the role of black people is to forgive and be gracious because my I came to this table of racial healing to prove that I'm not racist. 
right? Or to alleviate my white guilt about my racist condition. Uh, so, but here's the crazy thing, right? So black people are supposed to be forgiving and gracious, but rebellion and systemic change is reserved for white Christians. They are uncomfortable with the black people speaking truth to power, but they will love them some Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Right. So, <laughs> and, we, and look, y'all think I'm crazy. Y'all think, oh, he's just, he just being, oh, he's just being mean. He's just trying to be mean spirited. Look, man, look, let me, let me tell y'all something. Let me tell y'all something real quick. All right. Um, first of all, the reason why the cost of discipleship, pop, very popular uh, book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, can allow this picture to happen, right? The, them uh, being in there with uh, Trump and only having good things to say. The reason why the cost of discipleship can allow this picture to happen without saying a word of rebuke about the same uh, Nazi white supremacist sentiments that Bonhoeffer resisted is that to rebuke the white American male Trump may cause them discomfort socially, right? They are not here to advance uh, the kingdom of God. They are not here to advance uh, some of these other things. They are here to secure their safety in an empire, just like Herod was, right? Just like Herod, you know, he lost a war. Some may say they're in a culture war. He lost, Herod lost a war, he didn't like the way that it was going, so he goes to the Roman Empire and says, if you help me drive these people out that beat me in this war, I will have my unwavering uh, loyalty to Caesar and to Rome. And so here you have a bunch of white evangelicals, and, and hey, y'all might say, oh, that's me, hey. You don't have to believe me. Believe John Fia in his book, Believe Me, The Road, The Evangelical World of Donald Trump. He talks about there was a great fear in 2008 when a bunch of when a bunch of white Christians turned on the TV and saw a black president and saw what they viewed as them losing the culture wars and them saying spiritual. And really, it, the culture wars was white culture was no longer the default. Right. Uh, and they felt that they were losing this war. So they then turn to the empire that is in control and say, if you give us these things, if you give us this Supreme Court seat, if you give us these, uh, uh, if you overturn these bathroom laws, if you overturn uh, whatever, Hobby Lobby or whatever the heck they want to care about, we will give you our undying loyalty. It's the same thing of Herod within the biblical accounts of how he becomes king of the Jews. But when the wise men come to him in Matthew chapter two and say, we have come, we have seen his star in the, in the East and we have come to worship. He was born king of the Jews. And it's, it's under the connotation that that's not who the empire has lifted up as king. Then Herod gets threatened. And when Herod gets threatened, Herod gets dangerous. And so now these people, they don't want to come and rebuke Trump because what? We know what Trump does to his enemies. He know what people. We know what Trump does to uh, people who used to be his friends until they they throw him under the bus. We know how he loved Jeff Sessions until he recused himself and what he said about Jeff Sessions. You know he's loved all these people uh, until they went to court and 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 said what they said and then what they say about him. And so right now they are losing. A, these white Christians are losing a cultural war 
because and and they are suffering from a counteractive syncretism that whatever Western cultures and values are is somehow a faith and a religious liberty issue, uh, when really it is it is it is based from white ethnocentric values. And now if they see this being lost, they are now, like Herod, going to the emperor and saying, we have lost the cultural war, but if you put the might of the empire behind us to help drive these people out, we promise you our undying loyalty. But they will love a Dietrich Bonhoeffer, <laughs> right? So, so, and uh, there's a great quote I love by this brother, Amisho Baraka, and I tweeted it, and he liked my comment, so uh, shout out to you. Anyways, uh, no, that sounds super conceited, but he's a, he's a really great thought leader. Um, so brother Amisho Baraka says, patriotism is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is uh, uh, not a new thought. We, we think of Reinhold Niebuhr's The Irony of American History, where he's saying, like, you know, if I had pulled myself out of this kind of white Western conditioning that kind of W.B. Du Bois would talk about and say that, no, America isn't exceptional. It has also been founded on genocide and brutality and murder and all these other types of things. So rooted in my faith, why should I root for America more than other places? And he's not able to have that, right? That also uh, a Philip Randolph, great organizer, union uh, organizer. Um, he asked, uh, um, "How can America fight a white supremacist Nazi army?" Because talking about World War II, with a Jim Crow army, right? This army that's still segregated and is worshiping a white god. Which Brendan, he is saying, like, look, look, man, I don't know what y'all talking about. <clears throat> y'all got all the energy in the world to talk about. Nazis and white supremacists and all this other type of stuff, but y'all here trying to fight a white supremacist Nazi army with a Jim Crow army that's segregated by the same mentality you trying to drop bombs on, and worshiping a white god when he when Hitler also used this um, you know superior species Aryanism and mixed it with religion to do the same thing. So he's saying y'all were asking us to sign up our black people and put our behinds on the line when y'all are at. at acting out the same type of treachery um, uh, that um, uh, Hitler is doing as far as setting up a a false human hierarchy. uh, uh, But y'all want to be better just because America's stamped under it, right? And so here's what I'm talking about. Now, if you like me, and I love, you know, I love my my white brothers and, and sisters as well, you know, of course, but I see a lot of brothers and sisters with a certain book on their shelf by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, uh, on Dietrich Bonhoeffer by Eric Metaxas, right? Now, and I tweeted this, I said, look, I got far too many Christian friends who have the book written on Dietrich Bonhoeffer by Eric Metaxas that calls Dietrich a humble man of faith that resisted the evil Nazis who put people in camps. Yet, get this now. Y'all want to guess what Eric Metaxas' newest book is? (laughs) It's a children's book called Donald Builds the Wall. And within it, he dehumanizes um, and, 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 you know, has, you know, refugees as these type of dinosaurs and beasts or or other and, you know, uh, leftist people as, you know, cavemen and all these other types of things. And the whole point of the story is that Donald builds a wall to keep these people out. Somehow normalize uh, the same type of dehumanization that he <laughs> that he lifts up Dietrich Bonhoeffer for resisting uh, in Nazi Germany. 
Yet when that happens here and that happens within America, because he suffers from the counteractive syncretism, he can't see how Dietrich Bonhoeffer's, the same faith that inspired Dietrich Bonhoeffer to resist uh, concentra- uh, uh, concentration camps, is, it will be the same faith that would have called him to resist uh, uh, putting um, kids and families and asylum seekers in cages and building a wall to keep them out. He can't see that that is the same type of um, uh, uh, evil uh, because he suffers from this counteractive syncretism and he suffers from uh, this um, undying loyalty because he feels threatened that this culture war is breaking down uh, white ethnocentric values, which he has conflated to mean Christian values right uh and so um and here's the thing man look you see the rules of american christianity change when white christians experience discomfort uh uh, metaxas and the cbn liberty university fox news crew they can champion a pastor that resisted racism in germany but a white supremacist racist regime happens in the u.s and they support that mug Change a seat in the Supreme Court, change a sign outside of a bathroom, put a different skin tone on the president, and Christian ethics dissipate in a call to preserve comfort for white America. But these same worship leaders want camera shots of black worship leaders, right? So, and this is what, and so now we get into the do better baby, all right? Now, I had to set all that stuff up so that y'all don't think that I'm just out here, you know, talking reckless. The problem I have with these worship leaders is that Bethel music will sing lyrics like you make me brave. No fear can hinder now the promises you made. But when it comes to summoning bravery to advocate for black and brown lives being persecuted by Trump, the response is reaching out to touch the hem of his garment like this man is Jesus. And so case in point, the man dying to touch the hem of Trump's garment is this worship leader, Sean uh, Fute, who just who, by the way, just launched a campaign to run for Congress to save, and I quote from his promo video, the identity of America. And who does he have? He doesn't have an indigenous woman wrapped in a flag. He doesn't have a black woman draped in a flag. He has the image of a white woman wrapped in American in an American flag and says that they're trying to save the identity of America and says that America is not just a country, but a legacy. How are you going to talk about America being a legacy, but you're not going to talk about how America, how, how, uh, white America did not inherit this land. So again, y'all, I'm telling y'all, y'all got to read this book, Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys by Richard Twist. Uh, there's also a great book by um, Professor uh, Sung Chan Ra and Mark Charles, who is who himself is uh, actually running for president, called Unsettling Truths. That kind of talks breaks how to how to break people free from this nationalism. Um, uh, and so again, this guy Sean, um, coming and appearing as the missionary that 
Uh, like, for example, W.B. Du Bois and the Souls of White Folk clearly states that whiteness is a religion based in nationalism and requires both the colonizer and the missionary. And Sean is running to restore the comfort of white identity to concerned white Christians. And that's why he went to see Trump. Let's just let's just keep it real, y'all. Don't come up here with the videos and talking about the good things and all these other types of things. Let's just keep it all the way real. When Trump is talking about make America great again and restoring the white cultural values of America, y'all said, I'm down with that. Not because it's based in the gospel, but because of a loss of a cultural war that y'all felt. And this is the way because y'all got tired of red red cups at Starbucks that didn't say Christmas and all these other types of things. You felt that you lost a cultural war. And just like Herod in the Bible, you went to the empire to... Get some might, get some Supreme Court seats to restore this cultural identity because the shift in it was making you uncomfortable in your white ethnocentric values. Right. And so, like I said, man, look, I'm calling my white brothers and sisters in Christ caught in this deception to receive the blessing of the wise men who denied Herod's request to come and worship in order to be present with Jesus during the most vulnerable time of his earthly life. This is what was so crazy to me about this is all this stuff is happening during Christmas. But because we've been conditioned to think that Christmas is about trees and old Tannenbaum and getting the gifts and all these other types of things, we can literally see people reenacting and reliving the errors of empire during Christmas and do it in the name of Jesus. Y'all, y'all, I can't, man. I can't, man. And so what I so let's let's we're gonna we're gonna go back to revisiting solving versus problem. So I got to say, man, um, first of all, to all my white Christians uh um across all spectrums that I've worked with that I know are raising their empire, raising their voice against the empire, some people that I know who are really about that life, and they came and they um and they came and they uh, once they saw who was the um, that Trump was going to be elect, they said, I guess we just going to have to hold this L. And they just wrote in whoever they might. But they were like, I know for sure my Lord is not <laughs> with this brother. And I respect y'all for doing that. But some of y'all, man, y'all got to do better, baby. Like y'all, y'all have to stop. Um uh, uh, deceiving yourselves, y'all have to start listening to forming your people uh, uh, that can form the Christian faith outside of white Western thinking. I was on, man, I was reading the other day where this one person was writing, this one uh, uh, older white brother was talking about, well, you know, if James Cone is in heaven, I'll be surprised to see him, but I'll give him a hug, I guess. And it's like, sir, <laughs> To which I responded, I'll be surprised if I see any of these old white seminary owners who uh, who founded seminaries during the slave trade and didn't admit black people into their uh, institutions until the 1980s when Dr. Tony Evans was the first one to go in there. Like, fam, why aren't you surprised to see them in heaven? But no, it's got to be James Cone because he talks about maybe the gospel uh, calls us to work towards uh, black liberation. But oh, no, that's that's hell bound. But <laughs> not all so I'm saying like, yo, do better, baby. Like, yo, y'all have got to get out of break these habits of empire and get more into 
the uh, original context of 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 the scriptures and get into the original context outside of the Western Amer- uh, uh, United States mind and thinking, and and I th- I think that'll be a much better goal. But let me tell y'all, this picture, bro, <laughs> this ain't. And I got people who uh, I got friends uh, who play for uh. uh some of these uh, worship leader bands saying that they be all excited about getting black people on camera to prove to themselves they're not racist. But when it comes down to actually solving the problem of racism, they are not about that life. So, uh, <clears throat> and so I, I, I think what I'm going to transition into now, uh, and I'll close kind of with kind of revisiting the story of the wise men. But what I want to talk about right now, okay? I want to talk about solvers versus provers, okay? Um, because I, I, I can sense, I can sense people are getting tense when I say Trump evangelicals don't want to solve racism. Y'all getting tight. Y'all say, I am not a racist. I, do you know how many black friends I have? I love Earth, Wind, and Fire. How dare you? <laughs> uh, so let me... Let me let me differentiate between people that are here to uh, solve racism and disrupt racism versus people who are here to prove that they are not racist or people who are trying to disprove, um, uh, you know, how bad racism actually is. Okay, so we're going to circle back to the original tweet that I had, right? Uh, and this is just, it's easier for me to organize thoughts. Um, why write it again if it's already out there? Uh, so let's go back to this. And this is, this is, let me preface it with the most important question to ask when you're engaging in the work of racial healing, when you're engaging in the work of what people call racial reconciliation, hopefully it's racial conciliation, but for the point of this, the most important question to ask is, who is the work of racial healing for? I think we make a grave mistake when we assume that everybody comes to the table with the same purpose, because they don't. There are some people who come to this and believe that racial reconciliation is for alleviating white guilt and alleviating racial tension. You'll hear uh, such things such as, stop it, you're being divisive. Uh, uh, You'll hear um, uh, things such as trending more so towards forgiveness than repentance, right? Because if you believe the goal is alleviating white guilt, alleviating white discomfort, um, uh, uh, and forgiveness and unity without those other types of things, and we we, we talked about that on a previous um, podcast podcast, as well, I think it was on um, Whose Past Matters, I believe, is the episode that we had on this podcast. That was in season one. Um, so it's important. Or do you believe the, ra- the, 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 the goal of racial healing is actually, um, uh, allevi- is actually um, uh, eradicating uh, racism and that comfort isn't really a motivating factor into how the movement moves, right? So... I'll read through this and you guys let me know what you think. All right. 
So again, I said, if America truly hated racism, it wouldn't punish black people for pointing it out, calling it out and working to eradicate it. It wouldn't defend, honor, elect, and bless those who perpetuate it. In America, racism has been the necessary evil for white comfort. Meaning, if you come and engage in the process of racial healing as saying it's supposed to alleviate me of my guilt and my discomfort around the reality that I might have been conditioned by racism, which you have, (laughs) then uh, you're going to stop your work at proving that I'm not racist, right? Your whole work is more so about exonerating yourself from uh, the conditioning of racism versus actually eradicating the structure of racism. So I say this to say that many opponents of racism, I say that in quotation marks, opponents of racism do not prioritize black comfort as much as they do white discomfort. If you want to know more about that, you can listen to episode two, talk about the injustice of fragility and resilience, meaning that a lot of times in this work, black people are called to be resilient and white people are allowed to be fragile versus building up white resilience to being uncomfortable so that we can actually eradicate um, racism that uh, threatens the vulnerable, right? Um, And so when it says, I say this to say that many opponents of racism do not prioritize black comfort as much as they do white discomfort to eradicate to eradicate white discomfort. Black people are asked to pacify or downgrade their ask in eradicating racism in white spaces. Comfort is king, not justice. The truth is, as a white person, that eradicating racism will require you to eradicate the comfort and privilege you receive from the unjust system of racism. Using privilege for charity every now and then or just merely listening or practicing empathy won't get the job done. Right. So if you, you, you're you coming, if you're a white person, you're coming to um, uh, these types of discussions on racial healing or whatever, whatever they may call it. And you're you're patting yourself on the back and saying, well, I use my privilege every now and then or I, you know, I listen, I understand, brother, I feel you. And you think that's like. The finish line, it's not, because again, the job of the revolutionary, right, is to bring back the start line, expand the narrative, and also extend the finish line, right? Uh, Because I'm not asking white people to leverage their privilege. I'm working, I'm asking white people to uh, create a reality where their privilege is eradicated, where it doesn't exist, right? Um, uh, And so, to talk about this outside of, like, uh, racism. This is also true for me as a man, the fight against sexism, right? Uh, for too long, we have celebrated the bare minimum instead of challenging people to do what is required to cross the finish line. Now, so let's talk about this, right? So when I talk about people aren't concerned about solving racism, solving is the finish line. But a lot of times people stop at proving, well, I'm not racist. So ha, job's done here. Don't talk to me. It's not my fault, right? So for example, if I'm a man, well, I, I am a man, but <laughs> if I am working, um, if I'm working at a place where there's not equal pay, uh, I if I never bring that up, if I never, if people are talking about, hey, we want to talk about that, and I don't, whatever, and I, and my whole role in that space is proving that I'm not sexist. I'm not sexist. My wife's very happy. I'm not sexist. I'm, you know, I'm not really doing things to solve that problem. I'm entering into a selfish reason 
because I want to exonerate myself in saying that, oh, I'm not conditioned by sexism. I'm not conditioned by all these messages and this history and this structure that would uh, uh, place women in a, on a, in a false human hierarchy that is below men. My whole j- job is just proving that. Then guess what? I'm not actually solving uh, the problem of sexism. I'm not actually, um, working to eradicate sexism. I'm just looking to exonerate myself. So when I talk about Trump evangelicals aren't trying to solve racism because we have to talk about intent versus impact. If I send my whole work into proving or disproving my intent, I'm not actually doing the work that creates a different impact. And so that's what I'm saying. Trump evangelicals aren't positively impacting the fight <laughs> against racism. Uh, I'm sorry. That's, that's, that's just, just, just the truth of the impact. Um, and so we're talking about this, right? So I, I'll give a historical question of this too, an example of this too, uh, for those who are like, man, what, what, what do you mean? So let's go into the history here. Now, in this very uh, intriguing book called Eyes Off the Prize by Carol Anderson, um, uh, it's called uh, Eyes Off the Prize, The United Nations and the African-American Struggle for Human Rights, 1944 to 1955. It talks about uh, individuals such as uh, Walter White, A. Philip Randolph, uh, Thurgood Marshall, where they started to get wins in, uh, in W.E.B. Du Bois. They get, started to get wins in the area of civil rights, but when they really started noticing and saying, like, you know what? Civil rights and lawsuits and all these other type of things isn't really going to get black people where they need to be in really eradicating racism. Where we really need to go is we really need to go to the United Nations and take all this energy that people have towards um, uh, 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 racism abroad and, and uh, white supremacist thinking and all those other types of things. And we need to turn that lens on to... Um, Onto the Jim Crow South and the lynching and the uh, and the economic um, disparities that racism is creating, and really have advocate to have um, really advocate to have um, the United Nations and the nation as a whole to really participate in that. That's when we really gonna hit them with it, and that's when we really we're gonna be paying attention. And so they even had you know um, Eleanor Roosevelt, who was called the friend of the Negro, right? Um, uh, you know, say like, oh, well, she actually um was showing to really just prove that she wasn't a racist. But when we came to solving, when them southern people hit him up and said like, hey man, what you? T- I heard uh, they at the United Nations talking about we we can't have segregation. Talking about uh, we got you know uh, we got to change the economics uh, structures and looking down on lynching, which which was highly motivated to create an economic disparity to, to intimidate uh, the black vote and black businesses as well. And uh, Eleanor Roosevelt was like, oh, yeah, well, no, we don't really, really want to, you know, don't worry. It's not going to be anything federal. It's not something y'all would really have to you know, comply with. And kind of undermining that because once she saw that it was this eradicating racism was going to increase her level of discomfort then she got out of that and she just was happy to be known as the quote unquote friend of the Negro because she could exonerate herself from the racism, but she excused herself from the work and actually solving 
racism. So a lot of times with people like me, uh, when I saw all these uh, uh, worship leaders up in there, I, what I saw was a bunch of people that had lost a culture war and like King Herod, they wanted to make their deal with the empire to get the type of cultural identity that they wanted. But because they so want to prove to themselves that uh, they're not conditioned by racism and by white Western ethnocentric values, then they cloaked in religion. Oh, look at these good things that are happening. But they excused themselves from the work of actually solving and eradicating racism because they did not bring up to this person and this administration, uh, the, the administration that is arresting uh, uh, poli- uh, doctors who are just trying to get vaccinations for uh, uh, asylum seekers at the border uh, that that is is uh, 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 indoctrinating and, and is uh, implementing white supremacist led policies. Um, they're silent against that because they are not there to solve or eradicate racism. They are there to prove and exonerate themselves uh, from that and to restore this cultural identity that they believe they're called to do because they suffer from uh, counteractive syncretism. And just like Eleanor Roosevelt, they're satisfied with being called the friends of black people or look at the black person that I have singing with me or look at the black people who are in office. Look, there are black people here. What can I say about that? As if black people can't also be conditioned into thinking that the role of racial healing is to alleviate white discomfort and white guilt. So if it makes white people feel better about themselves supporting this person that I come, then it's my, hey, it's my role. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's what I've been taught the work of racial healing is to uh, do then this is exactly what you're going to try and see. So um, I think it's very important that we, uh, in the work of racial healing, um, that we need to start identifying and saying who is coming to the work of racial justice to solve something or to prove something. um, And that we saw, you know, And so let's talk about what a solver looks like versus what a prover looks like. I think it's important for us to uh, make that differentiation because um, I think it's important for us to make that differentiation. So an assault, a solver, someone who comes to solve. Right. And again, this isn't this isn't talking about someone who's comes presenting solutions. You can help a solution without having it created. This isn't like white saviorism of like, hey, I know what I have to do. I have the solution. This is not what we're talking about, right? So someone who comes to the work of racial healing to solve acknowledges that they have grown up and been conditioned by racism, but they're committed to eradicating racism from their personal lives and systemic structures, even at their own discomfort, right? A prover typically is mainly interested in work that exonerates them from their deepest fear of being racist or being conditioned by racism, Um. A prover is typically not as invested in eradicating racism as a solver would be because it's all about comfort. Uh, the, though a prover is discomforted by the thought of them being dis- conditioned by racism, if they are far more comforted by the benefits racism gives them, then they will not sacrifice for the cause. So again, prover might say, hey, I feel bad about racism and all that stuff, but hey, supporting somebody, I can't eradicate racism and vote for the person 
that's going to restore the cultural identity in the in the comfort zone of the nation that I like, that's going to give me the Supreme Court picks that I like, that's going to give me the religious liberty and the religious freedom that I like. So, hey, I'm going to bite the bullet and I'm just not going to uh, work on solving racism, but I'll just keep enough people around to prove that I'm not racist so I can get these benefits that I want. <laughs> right? So, so uh, and, and this isn't just on the right, right? So, like, the truth of the matter is that Look, you cannot look at the history and present of the United States with open eyes concerning racial justice and consider it to be great. Uh, uh, A prover often will say, like on the right may say, we need to make America great again. But on the left, somebody may say America's great already. That's how you get a a, a Pete Buttigieg talking about, oh, well, our, uh, our, uh, our founders didn't know slavery was bad. But as soon as they found out it was all good, uh, 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 nope. Because when you read uh, the story of Israel on the Appomattox and you find out that Richard Randolph, Thomas Jefferson's cousin, uh, inherited some slaves in his will. And he said, "Nah, this ain't the way it's supposed to be. And he set them free and used his wealth to buy them land and create a new Israel to help um, prove. uh, Well, this is maybe a good proof, but anyway, to, to give them their own land to say that. All the things that y'all believe about these people aren't true. If you gave them resources and stopped being so daggone racist, this wouldn't be a problem. That that was in his own family. You can you can talk about um what was um uh the Washingtons and their and them trying to get their slave uh their slave woman on a judge back, right? There's also a book called Never Caught that talks about five different um enslaved people owned by founding fathers, and they knew they knew what they were doing. But why? It's got to be with this nationalism where America has to come out good. America that is steeped in white ethnocentric values <coughs> has to come out good or I'm going to feel uncomfortable. So, again, this isn't just a, a, a something from the left, something from the right. I mean, even to me as an African-American, right, like I, I, I will, you know, I'm, I'm happy about the Emancipation Proclamation. But when I understand the Dakota 38 and um, the public hangings and, and, the, and the horrors that were done to the Native American community by Abraham Lincoln, I got to. I got to take a step back (laughs) as a Christian that believes in people having the image of God and say like, ah, I don't know if I can go all champion about that. But so this, this is, this is what I'm saying, right? Um, as, uh, the, in conclusion, the actions of the U S shows that it doesn't actually hate racism, right? We talk about the habits of a society really show its values as, Say it with me. Democracy in black at how racism still enslaves American soul by Eddie Gloud Jr. Um, uh, talks about the actions, right? Uh, the actions of the U.S. shows that it doesn't actually hate racism. The U.S. hates the discomfort of acknowledging the truth of its past. So America will do the bare minimum to prove to itself it is not racist, but will not do what is needed to eradicate racism. As a country, it doesn't want to solve the problem of racism. The U.S. just wants to do race-neutral symbolic equality to try and convince or prove to itself that it's not as racist or conditioned by racism as it actually is while keeping the privilege racism affords them. So to close it out, we all bring it back to the Christmas narrative of the wise men, right? And I just want to talk about some things within this, and you can read it in Matthew 2. The wise men come, saw 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 from the a star from the east, guided them, and they knew where the Messiah was. 
actually were like astrologers. Uh, and so they come and, and come to Herod and say, hey, we've come to worship who was born the king of the Jews. Herod's like, hey, I struck a deal with the empire that I'm the king of the Jews. Who's this person that's trying to mess up my spot? So he says, hey, y'all, I want to worship him too. So why don't y'all go and find him? Come back and tell me who it is so I can worship him too. Lion, right? But anyways, they, they go uh, and the star appears and they come and find the Messiah. And then God tells them in a dream not to go back to Herod, right? So we talked about this whole Romans 13 and Paula White and talking about, uh, you know, if Jesus disobeyed the empire, he couldn't be the Messiah. Nope. Again, counteractive syncretism. What the empire wants, uh, what the government wants is not always what God wants <clears throat> because he tells them, don't listen to the king that the Roman empire has put into place. Don't go back to him. So what I'm going to close with a couple of things that I think are helpful for all of us to understand. Um, um, uh, so one, uh, things that are helpful that the wise men understood, they recognized God was not always aligned with who the empire called the leader of God's people. They were able to make a delineating line that there is, uh, God and then there is <laughs> empire and they are not automatically aligned. They did not suffer from this, uh, counteractive syncretism. Uh, they recognize God may not intend to use the power of empire to establish his purpose. God told them not to return to Herod, right? So <clears throat> God may establish his purpose without using people that are in power, which means that I don't need to blindly support or give allegiance to them because allegiance to them does not mean allegiance to God. Number one, they weren't naive. When Herod said, oh yeah, man, we, you know, I want to worship them too, you know? Hey, you know, you know, <laughs> all these worship, all these worship leaders and pastors coming to Trump talking about, oh, you're the best uh, president for black people and oh, look at all these good things that are happening. They have the wisdom to see behind that to say that. Nah, man, we know what's, what you really are intending to doing. And then they were able to, uh, you know, because this is the same person who's coming to worship him, the same person in the next couple of chapters that all, that uh, orders the genocide of, of these people. Um, they also recognize that God sought to be worshiped among the poor and not the powerful in the palace. So the fact that these people are up here having worship services in the white house, how many of y'all going in and having worship services with the, uh, asylum seekers, much like Jesus who had to be, had to seek asylum in Egypt after this, how many of y'all doing worship services with them? How many of y'all talking about, well, there's good people in these cages. I don't think they should be. No, you are quiet. You, they reserved all of that for the people in power, but the wise men were able to recognize that God sought to be worshipped among the poor and not just the powerful in the palace. And they used their influence and resources for those who were pushed out and not for those who were propped up. The wise men to me seem more like these doctors who came and wanted to give uh, vaccinations for the flu to these people that were pushed out uh, and wanted to seek them, but the empire arrested them and, 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 and threw them out. And so I'm saying like the fact that all this stuff was happening during this time. And then what was really, what really, um, uh, did it, did it for me. And I'm going to close, uh, with some of the stuff when we finally had some people get some daggone common sense and Christianity today. Now I'm not saying I agree with everything that they ever post, but you know, um, um, but when they finally say, you know what, 
it's time for Trump to be removed, man. Like, look, what more do y'all need to have to do? And even when they said, um, they said to the many evangelicals who continue to support Mr. Trump in spite of his black and more record, we might say this. Remember who you are and whom you serve. Consider how your justification of Mr. Trump influences your witness to your Lord and Savior. Consider what an unbelieving world will say if you continue to brush off Mr. Trump's immoral words and behaviors in the cause of political expediency. If we don't reverse course now, will anyone take anything we say about justice and righteousness with any seriousness for decades to come? Can we say with a straight face that a, a, a abortion is a great evil that cannot be tolerated and with the same straight face say that the bent and broken character of our nation's leader doesn't really matter in the end. Uh, and so, um, but nah, <laughs> so all these court evangelicals and all these, all these people coming up in the white house, high-fiving, um, people that are, uh, uh, damaging those made in the, uh, image of God. Uh, and of course Trump isn't the first president to do that, but you got to say something about it. Um, they get all their friends together. I think about a hundred to 200 of them and they rebuke <laughs> Christianity today for saying that the dude has to go. And at that point, that's when I was like, you know what? You know what? I'm going to have to say something now. And, and, and this is something that I, I, um, and so, you know, they Christianity today wrote a letter back to them, which had something that I thought was very intriguing. First of all, they said, I know y'all feeling some type of way, but God is our tower and let the world wouldn't come. Y'all can feel how y'all want to feel, but we, <laughs> what, like they say, I said what I said. <laughs> um, and they asked this uh, very compelling question. They say, we ask our brothers and sisters in Christ to consider whether they have given to Caesar what belongs only to God, their unconditional loyalty. Now, Jesus said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, give unto God's what is God's. And they're saying, we spoke out because y'all out here giving to Caesar what only begins belongs to God, unconditional loyalty. And again, for this worship leader that wants to restore the identity of America and that America is not just a country, but a legacy, I would remind him that our citizenship is in heaven and our inheritance uh, and that is the it is the meek that shall inherit the earth one. Uh, and uh, America was not inherited. America was stolen. And aligning yourselves uh, with uh, with this uh, administration um, does is a complete damage and is a complete contradiction. The people that talk about the war on Christmas, I, I'm looking. I'm seeing a war on Christmas values because Herod, y'all are acting like Herod. Herod. Well, lost the war among his brethren. And so he then goes to the empire to get power by any means necessary. And in exchange for that power and that comfort, he pledges his undying loyalty. And so here we see these same things happening. Look, y'all y'all felt like y'all lost the cultural war or y'all lost Hobby Lobby or uh, you don't like how bathroom signs went up or whatever it is. And so instead of... Um, uh, 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 considering that maybe God doesn't call us to win all the time, but God considers us to love. God considers us 
to faithfulness, uh, God uh, considers uh, calls us to uh, humility. Uh, Y'all religion is winning. You're saying, well, if I ain't winning, then God ain't with me. Jesus didn't win by earthly standards. Look at the standard of when he when, how he was born, and look how he was how he died by earthly standards. Jesus didn't win. He went from twelve followers to three thousand followers to one follower to you know. I mean, like so, the religion of winning is and 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 Richard Twist talks about this in his book. He talks about this this cost and this constant uh, entitlement to expansionism is a part of the Western culture. <clears throat> that was founded by this doctrine of discovery and manifest destiny and that God always calls us to expansion when God could be in the shrinking. Uh, and so uh, this counteractive syncretism has run amok uh, just as it did in the time of Jesus. And if we are going to behold the wise men uh, and the lessons that they give, uh, we certainly cannot uh, support this administration. <clears throat> And uh, we are called, uh, uh, Jesus talks about if some person, if, if someone asks you to walk a mile with them, to walk the extra mile, so that we must go from just coming into this place of work of racial healing and racial justice from just proving that we're not something to going the extra mile and actually solving and eradicating those things. Um, because Jesus didn't say, I the spirit of God is upon me to prove that I'm an all right person. He said the spirit of God is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to um, uh, 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 bring liberty to those that are captivated. And so if we are to continue in that cause, uh, we must behold the wise men. We must uh, uh, shake ourselves and be emancipated from the habits of empire um, and so that we can actually solve and uh, eradicate um, those things that uh, harm uh who God has called us to look after. Uh, so I've 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 uh, I've talked enough, <laughs> but it was a uh, it was a uh, I had something on my chest. I had to get something on my chest. It wasn't sitting right with my spirit. Wait, let me let this train go by. Uh, <laughs> a little uh, joke there. Uh, what was that? Kanye West walking down the train. <laughs> let me let this train pass. Something wasn't sitting right with my spirit. But anyways, um, this has been. Uh, Season two, episode number six. Behold the wise men uh, revisiting habits of empire and why Trump evangelicals aren't trying to solve racism. As always, thank you all for listening. Uh, stay tuned for more. Uh, next episode, we'll be back on Navy Hill as we're talking about other habits of empire, how they uh, manifest into the government space. Um, and thank you all for listening. And if y'all mad at me, y'all know how to contact me. Holla at me. We'll get coffee. We'll talk it out. But uh, I said what I said. <laughs> Anyways, I love you. I love you. That's why I'm here. I'm your host, Charlie Ray. Peace.